I'm Peter Baxter. As editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology, it's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to be discussing the paper, Intracerebral Large Artery Disease in Acardi-Gutierrez Syndrome Implicates SAM HD1 in Vascular Homeostasis by Ramesh et al. The paper is due to be published in the August issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by two of its authors, Professor Yannick Crowe, who's Professor of Genetic Medicine at the University of Manchester, Manchester, UK, and Dr. Vijay Ganasan, who is Senior Lecturer in the Institute of Child Health, London, and a consultant at Great Ormond Street Hospital, London, as well. Thank you both very much. First of all, Professor Crowe is going to discuss the background to a Cardi-Gutierrez syndrome. So, uh, Yannick, can I hand over to you, please? Thank you. We've been studying this disorder, acardiogutia syndrome, for the last 11 years or so. AGS is generally considered as a, an early-onset paediatric uh, encephalopathy. In, since 2006, five genes have been identified that are responsible for this disease. The most recently identified was published last year and was, this, uh, was called SAMHD1. With the identification of the genes for AGS, uh, it's been possible to define genotype phenotype correlations, and it's been recognized now that there are essentially two phenotypic presentations. The first is a very early onset disorder that probably has a prenatal onset, and these children are presenting uh, at birth with abnormal neurology and and sometimes extra neurological manifestations that are very consistent with in, in utero infection. And then a later onset phenotype, which can present after a few days or a few weeks or a few months of apparently quite normal development, and the children then develop a subacute encephalopathy. Up until the identification of SAMHD1, we had never recognized any children with large vessel disease in the brain in whom we'd identified mutations. But since 2009, we've, we've come across five children who all have mutations in SAMHD1 and have all experienced large vessel disease. So this seems to be a phenotype which is somehow peculiar to SAMHD1-related AGS. Do you want to perhaps mention the, the other clinical features as well? One question was when to suspect the genotype. The, the children we're presenting in, in this paper... None of them have presented uh, immediately after birth, but they do give a fairly typical early presentation for AGS-related disease. One of the interesting features of these children is that they all have severe peripheral vascular disease, and chillblains have been described in about 40% of AGS patients previously. Four out of the five presented as cerebral palsy-like, yeah. didn't they? And then the fifth presented with the stroke-like episodes. So then in, in neurological terms, they all had the um, basal ganglia calcification. Yes. Four of, of the five children we present initially were brought to medical attention because of features of spasticity, and um, at least one of the children had a provisional diagnosis of cerebral palsy. Subsequent investigations have shown quite typical radiological features of AGS in the context of intracranial calcification, um, and in some of the children we saw also some white matter disorder. Of note, all of these children presented with early and severe peripheral vascular disease, so this is akin to the chillblain-like lesions which have been described in association with mutations in all four genes. But I think it is fair to reflect in these children that the peripheral vascular disease was very severe and 
I think um, one might make the suggestion that the disease that's occurring intracranially in these children is reflected in the peripheral vascular component that we see. Thank you. Can I ask a couple of questions in relation to that? First of all, in the standard diagnosis, it's always used to suggest uh, things like CSF interferon levels mm. and raised CSF cell counts, mm. at least early on. Has this been found in any of the children with SAMHD1? We do see, when we were originally identifying this new gene, we had quite strict inclusion criteria, which included either the uh, observation of raised numbers of white cells in the CSF and or raised interferon alpha or, or terrins in CSF. But uh, I think it's become absolutely clear that, that you, uh, you won't always find raised levels of white cells in the CSF. And at least over time, the association with raised levels of interferon alpha stroke terrins is lost as the child becomes older. So I think what we're seeing now is that you can make a clinical diagnosis and a radiological diagnosis of AGS in the absence of those CSF indices. And I think that's a very important point because... In particular, in relation to the radiology of this disease, I think one has to be aware that most children, when they go into hospital, will not be having a CT. That's a, a second line of investigation. Most children will be having MRI as the, as the initial intracranial imaging modality. Unless you're thinking about this disease, then I'm sure it's going to be missed. Are terrans, CSF terrans, worth measuring as well? The terrains are worth measuring, and, and I think that in my mind now, one might argue that the terrains are perhaps as good a proxy of this disease as interferon alpha. I think they both reflect some kind of inflammatory process that's ongoing in the central nervous system. So, well, thank you very much, Professor Crow. Um, just turning now to Dr. Ganazan, uh, would you like to discuss the background of this, particularly from the perspective of, of vascular disease and inflammatory mechanisms, please? I think these patients are particularly interesting because of the link between inflammatory mechanisms and vascular disease. So there are two vascular phenotypes that we've observed. Firstly, a kind of occlusive vasculopathy with or without collaterals, sort of moya-moya type of disease. And then the second is aneurysm formation. And I think one of the very interesting things is that these two phenotypes kind of reinforce the emerging concept that aneurysmal disease and occlusive disease may result from the same genetic disorder. So that, in fact, both of these are, if you like, quite nonspecific responses of the vasculature to a variety of different insults. And similar observations have been made in other genetic disorders, such as um, ACTOR2 mutations. So inflammation is now emerging as a very important mechanism in childhood cerebral arteriopathy. And in this disorder, we see a, a, a congenital or genetically determined mechanism. But acquired infection or inflammation is also emerging probably as the most important risk factor for vascular disease in the context of childhood stroke. Thank you. In the context of these children then, first of all, presumably it means that if one identifies exotic UTS syndrome, one then is obliged to look for this genetic form in particular because it might have management implications, mightn't it? Yes, and I think, um, you know, that raises a really important and difficult clinical problem because, you know, targeted vascular imaging may not, in fact, be routinely done. And even just a straightforward MRI might certainly miss aneurysm formation. So I think it uh, emphasizes the importance of vascular imaging in the context of evaluating patients for possible AGS. 
And obviously, both the clinical phenotype and the radiological phenotype that you know, might suggest that diagnosis is quite wide. I think the other interesting thing in these patients is that only one uh, patient five presented with what one might call stroke-like episodes. So, you know, the clinical clue to a possible underlying vascular disease was actually not there. It, it was actually the imaging which would then have triggered further vascular evaluation. Thank you. That comes on to a question of uh, whether children presenting with congenital or acquired stroke should be screened for this gene. I think that's a really difficult issue, isn't it? And I think probably what the view I would take at the moment is that I would look very hard for other clinical clues to the diagnosis. And I think particularly examining the skin is carefully something which is often neglected in, as part of neurological evaluation. Other features which might suggest a diagnosis would obviously be imaging ones such as atypical white matter involvement or basal ganglia calcification. Interestingly, basal ganglia calcification is often cited as an imaging feature of moya moya. And I wonder whether, in fact, the overlap of moya moya and basal ganglia calcification is likely to turn out to be quite a robust clue to, to this genetic diagnosis. I think that's something that will need to be evaluated in future. So I think one of the very interesting things is that uh, so so one, we we point out in the paper a, a very nice old paper I think it's from 1976 published by a, an Australian physician and the point to be made about that is that the child or the young young person in that paper really had quite minimal neurological manifestations in, in terms of say learning difficulties and we have other patients with SAMHD1 mutations who are really intellectually remarkably intact and so I think the spectrum of disorder in which we have to suspect AGS and in particular in this case SAMHD1 mutations is probably broader than most pediatricians think at the moment but we don't have any evidence to say that individuals who are otherwise completely well, apart from intracranial disease, are likely to have mutations in this gene. And I think the only way you'd be able to answer that is by performing sequencing in a cohort of individuals with inflammatory intracranial disease. And then I think the difficult issue then is how to define inflammatory intracranial disease because, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously one of the key features in these patients was that a very marked peripheral inflammatory response is generally absent. And I think this just raises a very difficult issue about how to actually pin down evidence of inflammation in blood vessels in the brain, which is clinically relevant because obviously one might be able to treat or arrest the disease process. I think it's going to be quite interesting to look at markers of vascular injury like circulating endothelial cells to see whether the, uh, these are abnormal in these patients because that might provide uh, other surrogate evidence of vessel inflammation. Thank you, yes. Is there anything you'd like to add to that suggestion as well, Yannick? No, I think the, the role of intervention in some of these children is complicated by their more general neurological phenotype. But as I said, in some of the individuals, it would seem absolutely warranted to try and define the disease status and then think about treatments. And, and one of the things that we've been discussing for two or three years now is the role of anti-inflammatories and immunosuppressive treatment in AGS and, and in particular, I think, in this case, in SAMHD1-related disease. And uh, all the evidence so far is very anecdotal and it's difficult to know that in any of the examples where um, immunosuppression has been given, it's made any difference. 
but I think that uh, that will be the way forward if we once we can define the the precise inflammatory pathways that are at work here, then we can hopefully develop and use smart medicines that will intervene in that uh, inflammatory cycle. And hopefully at an you know, earlier stage so that a lot of the damage could potentially be prevented because, uh, as you say, I think all of these children were obviously um, very impaired by the time the diagnosis became apparent. Mm. I think uh, also in relation to treatments, then one of the one of the useful things here, at least in terms of the patients we're describing in this paper, is that one might imagine that you could use any any effect of treatments on the peripheral vascular manifestations as an indicator of efficacy in relation to the intracranial disease. Yes. Coming back to that and the clinical management view, Jake, can I try and tie you down on the question of aneurysms and whether it's possible to screen for them, if so, how one should do that in these children and adults? I think that's a really difficult question because, as you know, there's a, a lot of controversy about aneurysm screening generally. I guess if the patients are shown to have this mutation and if there would seem to be a very strong role for prophylactic intervention, then I think one should actively look for aneurysms. And probably MR angiography is going to be the way to do it. I think the more difficult question is whether if a patient's had a normal study, one should then repeat it. I don't know, really, is the answer to that. And I guess I would be looking for evidence, clinical and radiological, that the disease process was actually active, which might make me think that aneurysms may form at a later point at the time of the scan, which would make me potentially want to repeat the scan. I think it's an unanswered question. Thank you. I've got a couple of other questions for, for Yannick as well. The first is, how available is mutation screening for a SAMHD1 if a clinician was thinking of the diagnosis? Uh, so at the moment it's not a, not available at all on a on a diagnostic basis. Although I know that the um, laboratory, diagnostic laboratory in Leeds are developing a service, um, we are providing uh, research testing in Manchester. The, one of the issues with AGS, as as a, for a lot of uh, genetic diseases, is that when you've got genetic heterogeneity, then it's a it's a challenge to sequence more than one gene and there's a, not an insignificant cost associated with that. But uh, I think there is light on, at the end of the tunnel in the sense that the new sequencing technologies are likely to bring down the, the cost and the turnaround time uh, very remarkably. So, so not available at the minute, but coming soon. Do you want to have, discuss a little bit your thoughts on what its role might be, its natural role might be? Yes, so what seems to have come out of the last few years since the identification of the genes of the ages 1 to 4 genes is that these genes code for enzymes that are likely involved in degrading self-nucleic acids which are produced during normal cellular processes and in the absence of these enzymes you get an accumulation of nucleic acids which triggers an inappropriate immune response. The biology of MHD1 is, is not at all understood but it wouldn't be surprising if this, is, this protein is also an enzyme involved in the same type of pathway as TREX1 and the RNAH2 complex. Some of the other patients has been this linkage to SLE, which clearly overlaps a bit with what we've been talking about already. Is there anything to suggest that might happen with SAMHD1? 
The link with SLE is very interesting. There is a, a clinical overlap in, for example, that a few percentage, not many, but a few percentage of AGS patients do go on to develop criteria that fulfill a diagnosis of SLE. There is an overlap in that AGS is associated with the raised levels of interferon alpha, and interferon alpha is a primary pathogenic player in, in lupus. And then it's also been shown that mutations in TREX1, the AGS1 gene, are present at about a 2% level in, the, in ordinary uh, lupus, so that there are important links, as, as you say. I wouldn't be at all surprised if in a cohort of lupus patients we, we also find mutations in SAMHD1 because, I say that partly because the clinical and mutational spectrum of TREX1 and SAMHD1 do seem very similar. Having said that, of course, it, that contradicts, in a sense, the point of this paper, which is that it's remarkable that we have never seen large vessel intracranial disease in association with mutations in any of the other four AGS genes, and I really don't have an explanation for that, other than it seems that SAMHD1 has perhaps a particular uh, role in um, endothelial homeostasis. you want to comment on that, VJ? I'm not sure I've got an awful lot to to add really i think i think it's a it's a sort of emerging story isn't it and i think probably these different clinical phenotypes are, are going to be i think we're going to see that there's actually quite a lot of overlap between what we see as quite distinct clinical phenotypes on the basis you know once the genetic basis is worked out there might presumably be an effect of age perhaps as well how many adult ags patients have been well studied yannick well, very few, and I think that is a good point, and it's something we alluded to. Oh, yes, the review of Eckhardy Gutierrez syndrome by Crow and Livingston that was published in the June 2008 issue of the journal, volume 50. Right, which yeah. is that uh, I think that there are issues potentially for the parents of patients with AGS. I think uh, we don't know if patients with AGS and indeed possibly parents and, and, and grandparents perhaps are at risk of developing later onset phenotype, um, which might include uh, immune uh, disease and inflammatory type disorders. Well, thank you both very much. This has been a very educational discussion of the article. I've learned a lot from it. It's interesting the questions that you've raised as well, which clearly indicate a lot of fascinating research we can expect in the next few years. Just to remind you, the article we've been discussing is by Ramesh et al., and it's called Intracerebral Large Artery Disease in Acardi-Gutierrez Syndrome Implicates SAMHD1 in Vascular Homeostasis. It's coming out in the August issue of the journal this year, 2010. Uh, it's also available online. Thank you again.